I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 6, Unity in Variety, Session 3. In the first session of Chapter 6, we looked at Shakespeare's use of words and images as they contribute to the unity of his plays. In the second session, we discussed speech, action, scene, character, and plot. Today, we'll conclude the chapter by looking at setting and theme, and by bringing ourselves, the audience, into the mix. The word settings refers to the imagined places in which the various scenes of a play take place. In the third session of Chapter 4, we looked at antithesis in language. In Chapter 5, we looked at antithesis of character foils. And in the previous session of Chapter 6, we looked at antithesis in plots and subplots. All these kinds of antithesis point us toward unity of meaning. To the same end of unity, Shakespeare also uses antithesis of settings. In play after play, comedy, tragedy, history, and romance, the playwright often moves the story from an initial social setting, a city or town or court, out into a natural or rural setting, and then back again. In the medieval and Renaissance imagination, the city was an image of the ideal social life of man. At its best, it exhibited man's highest form of development, materially productive, socially harmonious, artistically fruitful, spiritually coherent, reflecting man's highest gifts of language, reason, art, and the capacity to worship. The good order of the churches, palaces, houses, workshops, markets, waterworks, and defenses of the ideal city reflected the revealed aspect of the order of creation. By contrast, the forest of the medieval and Renaissance imagination was an image of extra-human and pre-human nature. The darkness and mystery of woods and wilderness were associated not only with what we would call nature, wolves and bears and the threatening elements, but also with the supernatural the hidden aspect of the order of creation. In the eyes of the church, the dark of the forest was associated with evil spirits, and in the eyes of the common people, with the magic and charms of fairies, ogres, and witches. Both these images, city and forest, reflected not only art and nature in general, but also the interior makeup of the individual person. From Plato's time on, the well-run city was an image of the government of the aspiring, rational, artful, just, and worshipful mind over the passions of the heart and the pre-conscious natural forces of the body. The forest in northern Europe, or wilderness in southern, was an image of the dark recesses of our human nature, our predispositions and impulses, our hidden fears and desires, and our dreams. For Shakespeare, when the town or city or court goes wrong, it is often a journey to the country or forest or wilderness that heals. Just as when people fall into sickness, they may be restored by surrender to the hidden forces of healing deep within their natures, or through the application by the physician of what Friar Lawrence, in Romeo and Juliet, at Act 2, Scene 3, Lines 15-16, to 16, calls the powerful grace that lies in plants, herbs, stones, and their true qualities. Hence, very often Shakespeare depicts movement from one kind of setting to another, 
from town, city, or court, to wood, forest, heath, or sometimes just a different kind of town. This movement almost always involves a journey out of an imperfect social setting into the wilderness of nature and imagination and back to the society whose rational order has been regenerated by its contact with the underlying forces of nature or the supernatural or both. The idea that the health of the city depends on its being in touch with ancient and mysterious natural and supernatural forces can already be seen in the humanities of the ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus. For Shakespeare, these changes of setting, in a sense, reverse the story of the fall of man. I'll discuss that fall and other fundamental Christian ideas in the third session of chapter 7. The characters begin in a social world of faulty or corrupt order, escape its depravities into a healing Edenic world, and then return healed to re-establish a redeemed social order. Examples of this movement abound in Shakespeare. In the comedy A Midsummer Night's Dream, the four lovers, suffering from the artificial love imposed by the social order of Athens, escape into the forest, governed by nature and pervaded by fairy magic, and return to the welcoming city in their right pairs. In The Merchant of Venice, we move from the selfishly mercantile world of Venice to the love-governed rural Belmont, which means beautiful mountain, then back to Venice to see it put into order, and then again to Belmont to celebrate the triumph of love. In the Forest of Arden, in As You Like It, all the escapees from the corrupt court are tested and properly coupled until the court, pursuing them, itself is healed there. The antithesis of setting is as useful in tragedy as in comedy. The murder of Julius Caesar in Rome is expiated outside the city on the fields of battle. Hamlet must go on a sea voyage to find his true calling at home. Lear must go out onto the heath in storm and into madness so that his reason and his will may be healed. Macbeth seeks power at court by succumbing to the poisonous temptations met on the heath representations of the wilderness in his own mind, and Burnham Wood itself seems to go on a healing march toward Dunsinane Castle to cure Scotland of that poison. In Antony and Cleopatra, the order of Rome is explicitly and repeatedly contrasted with the indulgences of Egypt. In the histories, too, the same contrast may be observed. Though uncorrupted, Prince Hal must seem to descend into the corrupt alehouses of London and must win a crucial battle in the open fields in order to secure his place as king back at the court. The romances bring this technique to its fullest richness. In The Winter's Tale, the wintry court of injustice of the jealous Leontes in Sicilia is contrasted with the summery pastoral delights of Bohemia. The entire play of The Tempest takes place on the deserted island governed by Prospero's magic, its context, the past corruption and future restoration of order in Naples and Milan. Finally, unity is achieved in Shakespeare's plays through theme. There are often more than one or two themes developed in a play, but the themes are always related by an underlying unity. Macbeth's motive for murdering the good king 
is vaulting ambition, as he calls it at Act 1, Scene 7, Line 27. The theme of the unnaturalness of that selfish ambition is conveyed in Macbeth's soliloquies. That same theme is reflected in the natural world itself when a little mousing owl attacks a great falcon. It is reflected in the words of the drunken porter, who imagines that letting people into Macbeth's castle is like letting the damned, selfishly sinful souls, into hell. It is reflected by contrast in the self-sacrificing courage of Macduff and Malcolm and Seward, even of young Seward, whom we see in only one scene. What it means to kill the good King Duncan is a mirror image of what it means to kill the innocent children of Macduff. The anguish of the guilty conscience expressed in Lady Macbeth's madness is a version of the anguish of the guilty conscience in Macbeth's last soliloquies. The witches, the stormy night, the comments of the old man, the holiness of the English king, the dagger of the mind that Macbeth sees, and the apparent moving of Burnham Wood, every detail of the play reinforces the central drama of a man who has chosen to war against the natural order of the universe. For mine own good all causes shall give way, says Macbeth at Act 3, Scene 4, lines 134 to 135. And that sentence, too, is a hologram of the whole play, which shows us what happens, both inside and outside of him, when a man betrays all good to serve only himself. In Measure for Measure, Act 1, Scene 1, Lines 44 to 45, when the Duke of Vienna makes Angelo his deputy to rule in his absence, he says, Mortality and mercy in Vienna live in thy tongue and heart. That is, you have the power both to punish and to forgive. Capital punishment lies in the power of the ruler's speech. Pardon lies in the promptings of his heart. The Duke continues, Your scope is as mine own, so to enforce or qualify the laws as to your soul seems good. Enforce in justice and qualify in mercy. In a soliloquy, the Duke adds, at Act 3, Scene 2, Lines 261 to 262, He who the sword of heaven will bear should be as holy as severe, that is, as merciful as he is just. The theme runs all the way through the play. Isabel represents the principle of mercy, but must act with severe justice. The Duke represents the principle of justice, but teaches the whole city about mercy. He is dressed alternately as a duke and as a Franciscan friar, representing that the same man wears the mantles of both principle, justice and mercy. The play becomes a representation of the tempering of justice with mercy that is required in every ruler in the macrocosm of the state and every person in the microcosm of his own life. In the end, the play itself becomes a dramatic representation of the marriage of the seemingly irreconcilable virtues of justice and mercy. Now let's add one final medium of unity, the audience. The ultimate unity of each play is that to which it gives birth in our own imagination, the imagination of the audience or the reader. Not that we invent it. Shakespeare so arranges our experience of his plays 
that we will see the unity no matter how many particular lines we may get or miss in any one performance or reading. And whatever our avenues of entry into a play may be, shared or personal, whether we first grasp the play through words or sets or characters or story or all of them together, by the end of the play we will have come with all the rest of the audience to the same unity of meaning that the play has striven to incarnate in our experience. The epilogue to The Tempest is one of the greatest illustrations in Shakespeare's writing of this audience experience of unity, and it gives a typically rich Shakespearean sense to the term meta as applied to our awareness of the meaning of a play. At the surface level, that of the plot of the play, the character Prospero is requesting the audience's permission to depart from the imaginary island to imaginary Naples, the play's setting for its version of Happily Ever After. At another, somewhat more meta level, the epilogue, spoken by the actor who has played Prospero, is a conventional request for applause from the audience at the play's end. Similar gestures are made by Puck at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, by the boy actor who played Rosalind in As You Like It, by Festy in his song at the end of Twelfth Night, by Gower at the end of Pericles, and so on. The actor is asking permission to leave the stage, and the play is over only when the audience claps to give that permission. Scholars debate whether there is a third meta-level, the level at which Shakespeare himself, the playwright, is uttering his own farewell to the stage, from which he is about to retire to Stratford. My own view is that indeed this third level is present here. But there is yet one more meta-level to the epilogue. What are the character Prospero, the actor of Prospero, and the playwright asking the audience to do? Here is the speech. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces soul that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Let us imagine that we are in the audience at the Globe when this play was performed. What do we do after these final words of the play? We clap our hands as requested. And what does our clapping mean? For Prospero, who has pardoned his enemies and freed his servant Ariel, has asked us to set him free. And the actor, in the same words, has asked us to set him free to go home for dinner. And the author, in the same words, has asked us to set him free too after his career of pleasing us with magical plays. Each is praying for us to judge this play mercifully by clapping, and we are asked to do so on what grounds? 
we are asked to pardon the character, the actor, and the author for their respective theatrical crimes on the grounds that we too wish to be pardoned for our own, perhaps, moral crimes, to free them from their faults with our forgiveness. When we do clap, our gesture therefore now becomes four things. One, the sign of the ritual ending of the play and the fading of the insubstantial pageant and its fictional world. Two, the sign of our approval of the accomplishments of the character Prospero, the actor of Prospero, and the playwright, and our forgiveness of their theatrical crimes. Three, the sign of our own wish to be forgiven for our crimes or sins. And four, the sign of our approval of and participation in the doctrine of forgiveness expressed in the final lines, a doctrine quite familiar to Shakespeare's audience in a slightly different set of words. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, words which may be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 12, in the Geneva edition of 1599, that was probably the one Shakespeare read. The entire play has been a story of sin and forgiveness, of virtue overcoming vice, not only with magical power over the physical world, but with spiritual power over the temptation to revenge. Prospero has said at Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 25 to 30, Though with their high wrongs I am struck to the quick, yet with my nobler reason, gainst my fury, do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. Now he asks us to thank the players and the play, to release him, to release the actor playing him, to release the author, and to release all our debtors from the bands of debt, and to express our own willing participation in the doctrine of forgiveness that the play has brought to life, all through bringing that doctrine to life here and now in our own clapping. Here, in one bit of theatrical genius, an imaginary world, the literal world, the moral world, the Christian faith, and the individual soul of each audience member are united in the ritual gesture of clapping. The epilogue turns that simple gesture into a communion, a common participation in the doctrine of forgiveness, hence of salvation, which the play and its author believed to be the deepest truth of life. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.